0: All right, well, good morning. Thank you, Garrett, for uh, not calling me Kevin. The jury was out, but now now we're here. Uh, If you have a Bible, go ahead and find 1 Samuel, surprise, surprise. Uh, We'll be bouncing around a ton, and I'll just say in the interest of time, uh, you may not be able to to keep up with me as far as uh, Scripture references, but... You're going to have to bank on trust that I'm not making stuff up, all right? So um, I am excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, As you heard, my name's Aaron Wine. If if we've never met, I'm the youth pastor here at Lakeview Baptist Church. Um, So uh, we're the the farm team. Kevin's the big leagues, right? Like that's kind of how... No, I'm kidding. That's not how that works at all. Um, My job's way harder than his. Uh, uh, (laughs) There are parents in the room. They know that's true. Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, but he did ask me to uh, try to accomplish a task that I find to be a little bit insulting. And uh, no, yeah, I, he was like, "Hey, I'm going to be out of town. I need you to teach one Sunday for me this summer." I'm like, "Great, you guys are going through First and Second Samuel, so like, what's the text?" And he's like, "So all of it, like all of it. Yeah, like First and Second Samuel. I need you to do like conclusions and reflections on the whole thing. So if you've been here this summer." You've done the due diligence and the work with Kevin on walking chapter by chapter, or chunks by chunks, through first and second Samuel. And for our purposes this morning, I just want to kind of do a 30,000-foot view of maybe some of the more important things and themes in those two books, which we know is really one book, just Scrolls weren't big back then. Um, and so the good news is, we should all be on familiar ground, whether you haven't been here this summer. You're going to get an overview that doesn't really require a ton of context. And if you have been here all summer, you're not going to hear anything you haven't already heard before, which is actually very encouraging for me because novelty is a big danger in the pulpit. So I hope that what you'll find in the points that I have today is what you will find as you read Scripture for yourself, period. Because what we want to do as preachers as those who teach the text of Scripture in the context of the congregation, is for us to learn as we feed on the Word together what it looks like to eat a meal by ourselves as well. So I'm not going to tell you anything out of Samuel that you can't find clearly throughout all of Scripture. So as you read the Bible for yourself and with the people of God, by the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit, here's the big idea. God has revealed Himself to us. And in so doing, he has revealed both our great need because of our sin and his great provision as a savior. So 1st and 2nd Samuel is in the context of the Old Testament, which is in the context of the Christian Bible, and it's telling one story. It's telling us one big thing. But it's helpful for us to kind of zoom in on these two books to remember uh, the historical content as well as, as well as the context of what's going on in this time. So just as way of reminder, the context of these scrolls we call First and Second Samuel is found at the end actually of the book of Judges, right? So throughout the book of Judges, before there was a kingdom, before there was a king, as God's people Israel was being led into the land by the conquest of Joshua and then under the leadership of these judges that were raised up because of their sin, and disobedience. These are the phrases that you hear over and over. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That refrain peppers the book of Judges. And though we get a little side story in the book of Ruth, preparing us for the line of David to take prominence, the state of Israel at the beginning of 1 Samuel is not good. But God was at work, forming a people molding a kingdom, and through the story of Samuel and then Saul and David, a throne that would all one day be used by His good providence to bring about the Messiah, the one promised all the way back at the beginning of our story in Genesis chapter 3. So what we notice then as we are about to dive into this overview of First and Second Samuel is that while there are interesting stories and high drama and narrative development regarding the story of the Old Testament— It is a book about God and his gospel. So like if you're thinking about what's the main idea of 1 and 2 Samuel, it's the main idea of the Bible, which is God and his gospel. Or another way to say this would be the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. So if you read 1 and 2 Samuel, you read any other thing in Scripture, and you don't come away fundamentally with that idea, reality, that insight, we should grow together in in trying to mold our hearts and minds to look for those things because that's what it's about. It's the revelation of God fleshing out His plan to redeem a people for Himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. So let's just think about some of the themes we could highlight as we come to an end on your study through Samuel, if you take notes, I was told earlier that this often isn't up on the screen, which I, you're welcome, I guess. Uh, so if you're taking notes, the, the first big idea is this. The world and the heart of man are darkened by sin. The world and the heart of man are darkened by sin. This is no secret, right? Sin has broken everything, and it's on display in spades in the narrative of 1st and 2nd Samuel. So let's just think of a few ways that we see sin and evil in these two scrolls and try to apply those truths in our own lives and our own circumstances. We see it at the very beginning in the story of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas in 1st Samuel chapter 2. So you should be in 1st Samuel 1, you should just flip the page. You should see 1st Samuel chapter 2, just put your eyes on verse 12. 1st Samuel 2:12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. I mean, we could just stop there and be like, okay, so these two characters, not good, right? Like, not good characters. Hophni, Phinehas did not know the Lord. They were worthless sons. They presumed upon God's grace. They defiled sacrifices at the altar and at the tabernacle. And their willful pattern of deliberate sin, both in the sacrificial system and in the way they treated others, especially how they treated uh, women in that day, their consciences clearly were seared by continual disobedience. If you just take your eyes down to either the bottom of the page or the next page over, starting in verse 22, you see that Eli, their father, rebukes them. He calls them to account. He says, what you're doing is not good. These things that I'm hearing about that you're doing is uh, an affront to God's holiness it's horrendous in his sight but as Samuel tells us in verse 25 at the end but they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death now we'll get to God's providence in the next point but I hope you see right here with the, with the idea we're going to kind of tease, tease our hand a little bit the idea of concurrence God is sovereign over all things that come to pass in his creation. Hophni and Phinehas have made a decision for themselves to be wicked. Both of these things are true, right? They would not listen to the voice of their father. It's right in front of them. They chose not to do it because of their great sin, because of their seared conscience, because of their pattern of willful disobedience. And that is exactly in line with the sovereign work of God to bring about his purposes. They pursued their passions and desires over the Word of God. And their end is destruction. They die. And so here's the the point. At some point, the call of repentance to those who do not know the Lord will come for the last time. At some point, you will hear the gospel and the call to repent of your sins And it will be the last time you hear it. We live in a a culture that banks on the idea that we are invincible, that is deluded in thinking. And you are a part of a generation, because I'm a part of it too, that thinks that all of our life is ahead of us. And we have all the time in the world to consider the seriousness of our actions or our futures or what we ought to do with our lives. And the clear idea here is that the call to repent has an expiration date. And for those who have their consciences seared by willful disobedience and deliberate sin. Only the Spirit of God can open their ears to hear it. We also see the sinfulness of the world and the hearts of man in the ark of God being captured two chapters later in 1 Samuel 4. We don't have time to really read this story, but long story short, Israel's going out to fight the Philistines, and they think, hey, here's an idea. What if we take the ark of God out to the battlefield? Surely then we'll win our battles. They presumed upon God's power in a moment of foolishness, doing something that ought not to be done. And we see it not just in their presumption and their foolishness, but in the reality that the Philistines exist. The world is broken, which means that there are enemies of God and God's people. Like, don't overlook the fact that the, the fact that the Canaanites and the Philistines exist and want to bring an end and destruction to the people who follow the Lord God is instructive for us in 2023 that there are people in the world who would long for and pray to their deities for our death and our destruction and our silence. That exists. That exists here in some ways. That exists around the world in many other ways. When what we do is whatever we think to be right in our own eyes, we fail to see who we are. We think we have all the answers, all the information, all the right kinds of thinking, and we know this in our sober moments, that is often not the case. So we see it in Hophni and Phinehas. We see sinfulness in this kind of willful pattern of sinful behavior. We see it in the Philistines as being enemies of God. We see it in the Israelites being presumptuous and foolish. We see it in 1 Samuel 8, when the people of Israel choose Saul to be their king. That say in verses 19 and 20, we want a king to go out and fight our battles for us. And that kind of sin is a rejection of God. A rejection of God as king, as provider, as protector, and the choosing of another to put their hope in rather than God. This sin of rejecting God as ruler of their life is quite easily adapted into our own lives, isn't it? We think of all kinds of things that we put our hopes in and give rule for our lives instead of God. And although We can be used by God to accomplish His sovereign purposes and Israel was used by God to accomplish His sovereign purposes and the throne of God in the kingdom of Israel was used for His sovereign purposes. Nonetheless, it leads to what? Catastrophic destruction. Exile. Assimilation into pagan countries. And it will lead to the destruction of every human heart. So when we... In our own lives, look at our circumstances, look at the things around us. And instead of running to the Lord and saying, Lord, you are my God, you are my King, you are the one in whom I trust, we say, oh, you know what? I could just, maybe if I just work harder, maybe if I just get those grades, maybe if I can just get into that internship, maybe if I can get that wife or that husband or that boyfriend or girlfriend or be a part of that group. All of us can find ourselves longing for things that are not God. And we might not say that we make them the rulers of our lives, but that's how idolatry works. When we dethrone God from the throne that's rightfully His and put something else in its place. We see the sin of our hearts and the sins of the world in David as well. I mean, David, the kind of the main character of these two scrolls. And although David is seen as a man after God's own heart and a hero in Israel, he is, as Garrett prayed, he is no messiah. He's not the Savior of Israel, not in the sense that we think he should be, not in the sense that Israel hoped he would be. Right In the story of David and Bathsheba, he shirks responsibility by not going out to battle when it's the time for kings to go to war. And he took advantage of her. And that sin ultimately leads to murder, to cover up. More failure to take responsibility, more failure to control impulses, more ruin, and in the case of the end of it, the death of Uriah and David's son. We could go on, right? Amnon and the rape of Tamar, Absalom and the murderous plots of his foe kingdom, and more and more. But the point stands. Sin wrecks everything. Its impact is far greater than we could ever think beforehand. It will make a greater mess than you ever think possible. It will extend farther than you think would be appropriate. So we should not be surprised then by the existence of sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, as well as in the world around us. But our response to that sin must be repentance. It must be the response of David after Nathan confronted him to his face and said, David, you are the man. You are the one who has taken advantage of these things. You are the one who has done wickedly. And in Psalm 51, when David cries out, says, God, have mercy on me against you and you alone. If I sin, cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Let your spirit not depart from me. That should be the response of our hearts. When we find our sin out, when it's exposed to us, that we would kill it. That we would put it to death. By way of just one quick application, if if we should not be surprised by the sins of our own hearts and the sins of the world, then we also should not be surprised about the sins of the people around us. So this is just a kind of a pastoral counsel tip. In your friendships, which I, we talk about this often, I'm, I'm concerned that very few of us know what Christian friendship really feels like and looks like. But as you develop Christian friendships, just make it a commitment in your heart. I will not be shocked by sin. I can grieve sin. I can lament sin. I can be disappointed in the sins of uh, others because of their sin or in myself because of my sin. But I will not be shocked. I'll not be surprised. Why? Because I know my own heart. And I know given the right set of circumstances and the right set of parameters, and the right kind of opportunities, I am liable to do heinous things. And if my friendships can't hold the weight of what we all know to be true, which is that we're all sinful, that we all struggle with weakness and failure, that we're all nobodies who are hopeless apart from Jesus, then I'm I'm failing to believe the gospel. For myself. I'm failing to believe it for my brother or my sister. So we ought not to be shocked or surprised by sin, but it must be met with repentance because we live in a broken world. We live in a world that is marred and distorted by sin, and we have hearts that are the same. All right, we've got to move on. Number two, the Lord is sovereign, but his providence is often subtle. The Lord is sovereign, but his providence is often subtle. Kevin and I both put I'm sure you know for his end, and just I'll say I agree with him, a high value on the sovereignty of God. A high view of how God is meticulously at work in every aspect of his creation. And a part of understanding his sovereignty is the idea of providence in the world. So think about providence with me just in three kinds of ways. First, it's seen in preservation. Here, God sustains his creation and remains in control of it And all that comes to be. So he is sustaining his creation by his providence. So a way that you can think about it is, when God creates, the God who is love, we see his creativity. Right? Are you ever thought, like, he didn't have to give you taste buds. He didn't have to make colors. Like, music doesn't have to be a thing. But in creation, we see this beautiful diversity, this expansive creativity. In providence, we see love, the God who is love, as fidelity. We see it as faithfulness. He is with His creation, sustaining it every moment. It's also seen in government, not like the government of the United States or whatever country, but that God is governing things towards a specific end. So He's orchestrating the events of creation, the realities of His world, To bring it to its appointed end. So, a shorthand way to think about God's sovereignty and providence is that preservation is under the hood sustaining control and government is leading towards ultimate ends. This is what God does in creation. But third, providence is seen in concurrence. That is, God is sovereign in and through the works of creation and creatures. So that's where life is lived. That's what we see in Samuel. So when we're in Samuel, we're not necessarily seeing government. We're not necessarily seeing the ends, although we know that they're coming. And we don't necessarily see the preservation, although we know it's there. What we see with our eyes when we read is concurrence. We see the actions of creatures, sinful human beings, and God being in control the whole time. So these two things are happening as one. That's what it means to be concurrent. So what do we see? Like Hannah's prayer in First Samuel chapter 2. God's sovereignty plays out in the reversal of expectations. That his power and might are far above anything else. Here, as Hannah prays, the barren woman gives birth. I mean, listen to this. There is no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven. She who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life and brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. We could go on. But Hannah's prayer is this confession. God, everything that happens in this world is because you are the one at work. The things that I should expect and the things that I may not expect and everything in between. God, you are in control. You are in control of my life. You're in control of the life of the son that I've promised to you. You're in control of all things. God is clearly the one in control. He's working in and through the circumstances and actions of his creatures to bring about his purposes. And sometimes when these reversals take place, God is clearly at work. He's, he's clearly being seen as one whose work. When a barren woman gives birth, you're thinking, okay, something's going on here. But most of the time, God's providence is quiet and subtle. There's no flashing lights. There's no seeming miracle around us. It's just the doldrums of an ordinary life that nonetheless is under the sovereign hand of God. Or what about just a few chapters later? We've already mentioned the Philistines having the ark of God when a plague breaks out among them so that they return the ark, right? The Lord is at work through things like the spread of disease. That's like not at all appropriate or applicable to our culture and generation, right? Right? He's in control. Like, none of these things should surprise us because none of these things surprise him. Or what about the preservation of David against Saul? God's providence sometimes look like, looks like faithful friendship, like the friendship of David and Jonathan. Sometimes it looks like a mighty warrior king trying to pin down and spear down a shepherd boy and being unsuccessful. Like, I don't know that we like, have that in our mind, but like, Saul was a warrior king. Like, he wants to kill you, you're dead. And David's just like hanging out in his lyre like, oh, too fast. Like, like These things ought not to happen, and yet they just, they just happen. Or in 1 Samuel 19. Oh, that's, that's the spearing down. Sometimes it looks like Saul's sinful pursuit of knowledge from the medium of Endor which seals his fate and makes it clear that David would be king. What about random deliverances for David? Like in 1 Samuel 30, when David and his mighty men come home to find their wives and children have been captured by the Amalekites, and they just found an Egyptian servant in the open country. They just found a dude like wandering in the open country, and he looked like he was in bad shape, so they bring him some food and some water, give him some rest. He's like, oh, I was a servant for the uh, Malachites. They, uh, they just went and just uh, took all the wives and children of these Israelites. And David's like, you know where they are? He's like, yeah, I'll take you there right now. Like, just a, just a normal coincidence of your day, right? Like that, you find this random person who needs uh, just a little bit of help but actually has all the answers to the questions that you could want in the moment. Through David's kindness, that servant led them to the Amalekite band and they rescued their families. One more clear example, 2 Samuel 17. 2 Samuel 17. Absalom is trying to get counsel on how to destroy David. He gets counsel from Ahithophel and yet decides to also get a second opinion from Hushai. He's like, man, Ahithophel just gave me some Great counsel, some great insight on how I could go destroy David. Seems like a cunning plan. But I want to get a second opinion from Hushai. And he goes with the second one. He goes with the second opinion. He goes with Hushai. Why? Look at it. Verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So again, what's happening? Absalom does what he thinks is best to try to take over Israel and destroy his father. What's happening? Exactly what the Lord has ordained and has brought to pass. You should come away from Samuel convinced that whether flashy or subtle, big or small, the God of heaven is in control of this world, which means he's in control of your life. He is in control of your life. For the Christian, as the late theologian John Webster says, providence, I love this, is a gospel consolation. It's gospel consolation. When, when I trust Jesus to be the Lord of my life, and I recognize Him as the Lord of the universe, and I really believe that those two things are true now and forever, it's consolation to my soul to know that whatever comes to pass is by His good pleasure and His wise providence. And the ignorance of that, not knowing that, is what John Calvin calls the ultimate of miseries. Because then you're tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of circumstance. Wondering, what did I do to bring about these things? What's wrong with me? What have I done? Or, if you're not the self-loathing type like me, why is this person doing that? And we look for other people to blame. So we either find ourselves the victim, or we find ourselves the broken king of our kingdom that can't bring about what we want. Neither of which is a good way to live, but both of which are often default settings of our hearts. Your heart, though, can rest day by day, knowing that God is bringing all things to pass for good for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. The book of Samuel plays this out for us. Last but not least, number three, Samuel promises the salvation we now have in Jesus Christ. Samuel promises the salvation we now have in Christ. One of the big things that we see in 1 and 2 Samuel is it's not done yet. (laughs) The establishment of the throne has happened. The establishment of God's covenant with David has happened, but it has not come to pass. God made a promise to Adam and Eve that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Throughout the Old Testament, that promised one comes into greater clarity and greater focus. We know from Genesis 15, 17, 21, and 22, he's the son of Abraham who will bless the nations. We know from the the Torah that he's the prophet greater than Moses who will speak the word of God to his people. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that he will be of the house of David and that he will reign as king from his throne forever. Now, if we keep reading the story and move on into 1 and 2 Kings, we will begin to think that Solomon, David's son, looks the part. And that should be, probably, that probably is the expectation of most people as they are living out this story. David was promised by God that his son would rule as king. Here's Solomon, filled with wisdom, blessing the nations, expanding his kingdom further than many dreamed possible. but we know that that will not pan out. Hope for the one to come has been realized in the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of God, Jesus, the promised one. So as Christians, we read First and 2 Samuel already knowing the end of the story and already seeing as we look at these promises, as we look at these covenants being established, how they are fulfilled in Christ. So, if we already know the end of the story, why do we spend time here? This is maybe, a fair, maybe you don't think that's a fair question. Maybe you've never thought of it. If you're like, if I already know, it's like if I already know who wins the game, why do I watch the game? If I already know the end, why do I need to read this? Well, if the purpose of the Bible is to know God and to know His gospel then we believe what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is profitable. It's all breathed out by God. So what's the profit for Christians to read First and 2 Samuel more than, I know the historical development of the nation of Israel and the development of the Davidic throne. I know the historical content of things like the Council of Ahithophel and the death of Absalom and uh, David and Bathsheba and Goliath being killed by a rock. Like, what else is there for us? If you seek him, you will find him. And the story of Samuel is a story that tells us about Christ. It's a story that tells us about the kind of Messiah he is. Now often that happens through contrast. He is not a king like Saul, vindictive and angry and led by harmful spirits, disobedient to the word of God out for his own glory rather than the glory of God. He is not like David, one who goes off on impulse at times, who although is faithful to God, his faithfulness is mixed. We learn about Jesus when we read his word. We learn about God when we read his word. So we read First and Second Samuel to know the story so that when we see him as he is, we will know him to be the fulfillment of all that he has said to us. I've said this to youth before, and I may have said it to you in this context, but the, the, the glories of Psalm 16, at your right hand is fullness of joy, or in your presence is fullness of joy, your right hand are pleasures forevermore, is a promise that you and I, when we become Like him when he comes to meet us face to face, it means that we all will have fullness of joy. But what does fullness of joy look like? And I'm convinced, and I think the scripture tells us this, that fullness of joy is is relative. So think about it. Think about it like this: Um, I have a um, a student. uh, Let's just I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on Nate because Nate plays sports and uh, knows some things about sports that I don't know, right? So we could go to a we could go to a football game. Like, me and Nate go to a football game, and I'm thinking, like, you know, this is awesome, this is incredible, these are great football players, amazing game. But my knowledge of the game and my knowledge of maybe the context of why this game is important is far smaller than Nate's. He's been on the field. He's played those plays. He knows these players. He knows their stories. He knows the the kind of intricacies, intricacies that are going on in the play calling that I just don't know, right? He's over here playing 3D chess, and I'm acting like I know how to play Minesweeper, but none of us know how to play Minesweeper, and so like we're just clicking. Now, we both can leave that game and go, man, that was incredible. I had a great time. We can say the same words. My joy could be full, but so is His. But His is a greater joy. And the reality of our faith is that as we spend time in God's Word, our capacity for the fullness of joy in Christ will expand to the extent that we are willing to see Him in His Word. As we come to know Him, as we come to know His Word, as we learn and embody the truths that He reveals to us about Himself, our fullness of joy grows. It's why we really can look up to spiritual mentors, whether that's table leaders who are adults in this room, senior adults who have lived life walking with Jesus three times as long as you've been alive. There's something there for us. Now where does that leave us? In our very small amount of time left. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Some of my favorite stories in the Bible. And for those of you who weren't here this summer, let me just kind of give you the context. Saul becomes king of Israel. He's a mighty warrior king. He looks the part, right? He's like the Chris Hemsworth of Israelite kings. And the spirit departs from Saul because of his disobedience. David becomes this new kid on the block, this. Savior who defeats Goliath. Saul has slayed his thousands. David has ten thousands. Saul hates. David is committed to the destruction of David. Saul's household is now bent on finding David so that Saul might kill him. And although there's some mixed motives and some lack of intention or desire because of people like Jonathan, ultimately Saul is focused on his destruction for years Saul's stance towards David has been, I want you dead. And David becomes king. And Saul dies. And Saul's family dies. And David said, verse 1, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? In light of how kingdoms work, this is an anomaly. Normally how kingdoms work is that when there's a regime change, the former house is devoted to destruction. Especially if that former house was bent on your destruction. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zeba. And they called him to David, and David said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Did you hear the change? Ziba was a servant in the house of Saul. But now David calls him. He says, Are you Ziba? I am your servant. I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face. And paid homage. Now, think about Mephibosheth. He's crippled in his feet. We don't know why. But what we know if he's crippled in his feet is that he's not able to care for himself. He's not able to make a living for himself. He's not able to provide for himself. I mean, think about think about the New Testament sick and wounded and broken that Jesus goes to heal. Mephibosheth would be on a mat next to them. The only thing that Mephibosheth provides is his need. And his lineage doesn't help. I mean, yeah, he's the son of Jonathan, but he's the grandson of Saul. He is near and close to a kingdom that has been destroyed by the judgment of God. He is, in most ways you can imagine, on the wrong team. And so he gets brought before David. We're not told that he knows why. He comes before David... And he falls on his feet, and he pays homage to him. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. Because if I was Mephibosheth, the only thing I could be thinking is something close to what Isaiah thought in Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees the Lord face to face and becomes very aware that he is in a place that he ought not to be. And the only thing that he should expect is judgment and destruction. And the only thing he knows about himself is that he's crippled in his feet. There's nowhere else for him to go. There's nowhere for him to turn. There's nowhere for him to run. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? It doesn't make any sense. And if we're honest, we could say the same thing about the gospel. It doesn't make any sense that the Lord would come before traitors, those who were a part of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians tells us, and say, why don't you come sit at my table? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So not only does he give him a seat at the table of the king, he gives him works that are not his, but applied to him. You go till the soil. You go produce the crop on his account. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, "According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servant do. Will your servant do?" So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Why do you think Samuel says that? Why do you think he wants to end that story reminding you that Mephibosheth even when placed in this position of honor and dignity and glory, is, in his own strength, utterly helpless. Perhaps it's to remind us that the gospel is not something that we start with and then kind of just figure the rest of it out in our own capacities but is the track that we hobble along with our lame feet being carried by Jesus from now to the end of time. So where are we? We're here. This is us. Part of the family that tried to kill the king and yet found, chosen, blessed with a permanent seat at the table. Let me pray for us. I don't know when you guys officially get done. I'll throw some discussion questions and maybe just time to pray at your tables for just a few minutes and then I'm assuming Katie will uh, dismiss you guys. Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that your word is clear in pointing us to the provision of Jesus, the scandal of the gospel of grace. And that when we see and look with eyes that have been opened by the Spirit of God, we will find treasures to store up in our hearts now and forever. So Lord, I pray that today we would come away from this time of thinking about Samuel aware of the heinousness of sin and our utter need for deliverance. That we would come away with Confident hope in your providence and your sovereignty over our lives and over the world. And that we would come away grateful. That the Messiah that was promised, foreshadowed, hinted at, and longed for in First and 2 Samuel, has come. And his name is Jesus. And he's coming again. Lord, would you remind us? I just think about tonight when we gather together as the people of God to take the Lord's Supper, that we're going to the Lord's table to sit with Him, to be nourished by Him, to be reminded that He has brought us up to sit in His presence, to be loved, cared for, so that the kindness of God might be shown to us, not because of what we provide, in spite of our sin. Because of his great love. Thank you, God, for the gift of the gospel. Thank you, God, for your word. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.